Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, everyone. Just a quick one before we start today. So I know you guys are probably a bit tired of hearing this, but we've just rejigged our Patreon, and I'd really love it if you could just head on over to patreon.com slash a new winter and take a look. You'll see that for a measly five bucks a month, you'll now get access to our exclusive podcast feed, where I'll now start putting up two extra episodes a month. The next of which, we'll be having a look at the original Tron and Tron Legacy. I'm super excited to be delving into it again, so sign up now so you don't miss out. We'll also start putting up episodes a full week earlier than the general public. So check it out. There's a link in the show notes. And again, it's patreon.com slash a new winter. Now, you and me need to have a conversation. Let's sit down and talk about us. Culture. Hey guys, welcome to A New Winter, Colts and Culture, and today we're going to be talking about the 2019 American horror film written and directed by Jordan Peele called Us. It stars Lupita Nyong'o, and apologies if I, I mispronounce that, Winston Duke, uh, both of which you might remember in Black Panther, uh, Shahadi Wright-Joseph, Evan Alex, Elizabeth Moss, and Tim Heidecker, who I always think of as one half of Tim and Eric, Elizabeth Moss, you might recognise as a name from uh, Mad Men, and also The Handmaiden's Tale. Uh, it was a commercial success. It grossed $254 million worldwide on a budget of $20 million. Um, it was a critical success, and it was inspired by the Twilight Zone episode Mirror Image that was centred on a young woman and her evil doppelganger. So you may have already read about the film or watched YouTube videos discussing what's really going on with uh, this film, but I would like to think that I can shed maybe a little bit more light. 
So if you feel you've figured out all the metaphors or symbols within the film, then keep listening because there may be something that you didn't realise. That's a classic right there. It's about drugs. It's not about drugs. It's a dope song. Don't do drugs. Get in rhythm. So the film begins by telling us how under America, there are lots of tunnels, some we don't know what for. So already, it begins with this spooky mystery, this sense of unease, and also puts something in the back of your head as you continue to watch the film. The next scene is an 80s old school TV where you can see a little girl watching in the reflection. Reflections being very important, by the way, which we'll come on to. On the screen is a Hands Across America advert showing people from all races across the states holding hands for this charity to fight hunger. You may also see the film Chud up next to the TV, which is a basically crappy old horror film about monsters living underground. And little hint there. So we now cut to a fun fair in Santa Cruz where we're following the girl as she walks around with her parents. You may notice the shots are taken from a rather low perspective, as if from the child's perspective, and also set slightly far back, as if we're watching as an observer. So we are usually behind the characters and there's lots of light in front of them. So essentially, you could say that you're watching them from the shadows that they are literally making. Again, this is quite important for later. So the little girl's father uh, wins a Michael Jackson Thriller t-shirt for the daughter. And the mum is worried that this will give her nightmares. There's a reason for this T-shirt that Peel has actually spoken up about. Let's say uh, duality um, is a theme in the movie, and not only of Michael Jackson himself, but of his character within Thriller. And if you remember, he becomes a dancing zombie. And the fact that the monsters within the Thriller video are zombies, and with how Thriller ends, you will see that Michael Jackson is still a monster due to his, like, monster eyes. You know, what a twist. Um, But yeah, keep that in mind. So the mum is worried that the T-shirt will give her nightmares. And as the little girl looks around, uh, we see things from the daughter's POV here. You'll also notice that almost everyone seems to be affluent and white, um, which obviously is a a bit of an issue that comes in later. Uh, You also notice that everyone seems to be quite happy. Um, It's a very kind of Stranger Things kind of moment. There's an element where it looks as if like people might be watching it, that are remembering the 80s quite fondly. Um, It's like lots of happy, smiling teenagers. But then in the midst of this, there's one guy with a sign saying Jeremiah 11, 11, which we'll come on to later as well. So she seems to be drawn down these steps to the beach, looking out to the sea. Uh, We're now on her level. There's thunder and lightning happening before a sudden downpour of rain forces her to go inside this weird funhouse. So it's quite ominous. It's nature here that's actually terrifying us at this moment. Um, And also the fact that it's very dark, that literally the world is in shadow at this moment, is, again, a running motif throughout the film. Um, It's also the idea of thunder and lightning and, like, an angry god. Maybe it's God dealing a sequence of coincidences that makes her go inside this funhouse in the first place. That perhaps it's her fate. So you may notice that the face atop the funhouse is a Native American... And there's a sign saying, find yourself, leading into this dark tunnel. Again, we'll come on to this a bit later, but that's quite important. Keep that in your head. So she drops her candy apple, goes into this funhouse full of mirrors, and the power goes out. 
She tries to head towards the exit, but she becomes all jumbled up and she starts whistling. And someone else starts whistling too. And if you notice, it's Incy Wincy Spider. Spiders, again, being a bit of a motif and something that I'll come on to in a bit. Um, and then as she's walking around, she sees the back of her doppelganger. Her eyes go white and then suddenly, bam, we cut to the eye of a rabbit. Uh, so this is the title sequence, and as the camera pulls back from this rabbit's eye, we see more rabbits in different cages against a wall, and then what looks like is at the back of a classroom of sorts. So, very strange. We then cut to the present day, and we see a family in the car, bickering, chatting, talking about going to the Santa Cruz beach. Uh, we're shown a flashback to indicate that the mother of the family is the girl from before, where she sees her parents talking with the doctor about the fact that She's not talking and all this stuff and the dad going, it was only 15 minutes and all this. So that's indicative that the mother is the girl. Um, they don't know what happened to her. We don't know. Um, but yeah, she's gone silent. So we know. So during this bickering between the family, the daughter discusses about how she isn't that bothered about doing track anymore, which is running basically. The son is having trouble with his lighter magic trick. Um, and he's wearing this kind of like wolf. Um, it's almost like a Chewbacca kind of mask. Um, None of this might seem might not seem relevant at the moment, but yeah, just you wait. So we then see mum on the couch, and her name's Abigail, by the way, and we'll keep calling that from now on. And she's looking at a fake spider, and next to it is a real crawling one. So there's again a sense of duality here. So let's talk about the spider a little bit. A spider is seen as a symbol of power, uh, where it traps things in its web. Um, it's a symbol of control. It symbolises the shadow self the dark aspect of your personality. It's also a symbol for creativity, as well as a symbol for femininity. Um, it's also a symbol for patience and fate. There's, you know, a web, a plan, a trap. So all of these things ties into the film's different themes. And even though it's just such a small moment, it's actually quite an important symbol. It also reminds me of the 2013 film Enemy, which is about Jake Gyllenhaal meeting his double, and spider symbols are used throughout that film. So, a bit of a coincidence, maybe? So the mum, Abigail, says she doesn't want to go to the beach. It's the first time they've been back here since Grandma died, and so, at this point in the film, when I was first watching it, I was thinking, perhaps this family trauma has made her feel like she has to face up to what happened to her as a child. The death of her parents, and a mother especially, could maybe reflect her own role as a mother. But her husband talks her into going, as long as they're back before dark. So Abigail looks for Jason, her son, and he's drawn down into like this basement area in the house, underground, something that's quite key for later. She finds a little toy rabbit, which is interesting, and sees a sudden reflection of herself as a child dancing as a ballerina. The child she sees smiles back, and it's all a little bit creepy. But again, reflections, they're a running motif in this film. So, yeah, it's quite important. Jason then hides in a cupboard and is trapped when an ambulance that's used to prop the door open, this little toy ambulance, is kicked away, leaving him unable to get out. So obviously a bit of foreshadowing that that's going to be a bit useful later. They then go to see the dad driving this rickety boat around in this lake. And that, you know, adds a bit of comic levity. And you know, Jordan Peele, being a comedian, is great at knowing the timing of the jokes or any gap where one can fit easily and alleviate the tone slightly. When it needs to be serious, it's very serious, but the emotional roller coaster he takes you through is something very unique to him as a filmmaker. And almost, instead of this kind of constant feeling of dread, by having these moments of levity, 
make the disturbing bits even more disturbing, I think, anyway. So on their way to the beach, the daughter makes a remark about a government conspiracy of putting fluoride in the water. It's kind of brushed off at the time, you know, it's a, it's a paranoia that has been heard a million times before, but it's putting that little nugget in your head that will play a part later um, in terms of government experiments. So it's also symbolic of how, I think anyway, the youth of today, uh, you know, like the rebellious teens maybe, are more judgmental of the government than ever. Again, it's this idea of power, who has it and who doesn't. As they're in the car, they listen to, I got five on it. And they joke about how it's about drugs. And the dad says, it's not, it's just a dope song. So this is one of the examples of how pop culture works within the film, especially with black culture and appropriation, etc. So, you know, it's how a song about drugs has now lost its meaning and its effect because it's just a great song, or as he calls it, a dope song. And dope obviously being a word for drugs. So yeah, it's quite a funny bit of wordplay there as well. Um, but yeah, it shows how things ingrained within the mainstream media, and in, in this case, pop culture, they lose their original meaning. And this could be said for our main character as well, which is a little hint at what happens at the end there. But yeah, so Abigail also tries to teach Jason to click along to the song, but she's out of rhythm herself. Again, just these little things, there's something a little bit off about her and with Jason, to be honest, that's the whole thing entirely. So it's almost like there's something maybe a little bit soulless, maybe. Again, wink, wink. Um, as they drive up, we notice that the Jeremiah 11, a guy that we saw at the beginning of the film, now obviously a lot older, is dead and being wheeled into an ambulance. So now they're at the beach and you also see as they walk along the beach, the long shadows they cast on the sand, but the way it's shot from above, it's as if the shadows are the focus of the shot rather than the family. Again, very relevant. You also see that Abigail's shadow is slightly out of place with the others. Um, and they look like troops kind of marching through. And also you'll notice it's kind of like a one, 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 one. Again, these symbols come in quite a lot during the film. Uh, so we are introduced to their white friends, Tim Heidecker, who is weirdly funny in this film. And um, seeing as I love you know Tim and Eric and everything Tim Heidecker actually does, it did kind of pull me out of it a little bit. Um, but that's just me personally. Uh, Elizabeth Moss, who's always great. And there's clearly an element of like keeping up with the Joneses here. Um, you know, Tim, uh, it's not his character name, but Tim, I think his character name's Jim, but Tim winds the dad up about um, his new boat that he's just got this rickety boat, um, something to do with the flare gun, I think, and all this, which comes into play later. Um, Moss discusses how she always wanted to be a Hollywood actress and she's had a bit of work done. Um, you know, another covering of the cracks, as it were, like a mask, masks being very important here. Um, so there's kind of a have and a have not situation. Um, that social class thing of always trying to keep up with your peers and also the fact that they're white shouldn't really go unnoticed. Uh, also, there's this slight awkwardness around the wives. Abigail says she's not very good at talking, which reflects the flashback we saw where she had supposedly gone mute. So the son, Jason goes to the toilet, which is conveniently located by what was the Native American funhouse that has now been whitewashed, literally, to be a wizard. Merlin, to be exact. So essentially it's covering up the bloody history of America by changing the Native American. So the children of the white family are twins. Again, this idea of doppelgangers and doubles. And they talk in sync. So there's this nod to coincidences and fate 
Um, but also if you see, uh, she actually has one of the daughters has a black flag, uh, shirt on again, it's another nod to the appropriation of pop culture. And if, if you remember at the beginning of the film, there was a man at the fair who had a black flag shirt on, um, and it didn't look like he was wearing it because of a fashion statement. It looked like, you know, he was actually a fan of the band. Uh, whereas here, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like it's being, and you know, maybe this is just my view on it, it's being worn as a fashion statement. And it's kind of anti-authoritarian image has been kind of pulled away from it and used for something else, um, been kind of bought, essentially. Um, it's been absorbed by the mainstream, so it's lost its true meaning and the, and the effect that it had. And maybe that's a time thing. Um, because time has passed and, you know, cultural appropriation or whatever you want to call it, it just, it just means that it's lost its edge. It's just become assimilated into society. So we see a Frisbee land perfectly on a circle on their towel. And again, this idea of coincidence, fate, etc. Um, and they, they talk about it within the film. Like everything is perfectly syncing up, like mirroring itself. You know, she takes the Frisbee off and it, you could say it's almost like an unveiling of a mask as well. It's like a a, com- a perfect double of the shape. So the son comes out of the toilet and sees a guy in a Mac, his hand covered in blood, and he's just standing there, arms outstretched. Um, throughout the film with these uh, bad people, you will notice as well, they always collect something um, off of their victim. So here it's a Mac. Um, but yeah, it's just worth keeping an eye out as, as you go through the film. So they, the family have a bit of a fright because they think maybe they've lost Jason. Um, but they find him and he's like, yeah, what's up, whatever. Um, and they take him home. They see 11-11 on the clock. The football score, um, American football, or football as it's called in America, uh, I believe is drawn at 11-11. So there's a lot of this number kind of appearing everywhere. Again, coincidences, fate, etc. We see that Jason has drawn a disturbing crayon picture of the man that he saw at the beach, but it's from a strange angle as it's the back, it's the back of the man and the back of Jason's own head as if he was observing himself. So it's not only a nod to when Abigail encountered the back of a double's head, but also the idea that he was maybe observing himself very strange. Now, there's a running um, theory that Jason, during this process, um, where he went to the toilet and he was heading towards the funnels, whatever, Jason actually got switched. Um, now, it kind of doesn't really make sense with what happens in the kid in the mask and all this stuff and when he meets his double etc but that maybe he's actually um from the underground as well it's uh, it's because of the way he like looks and seems to understand abigail and again we'll kind of come on to this but i think it's quite an interesting theory and there's this this um crayon drawing i would say would be proof towards it if you're arguing that case the fact that he watches himself watching someone else you know what i mean so yeah it's quite interesting so um they put him to bed and uh, abigail talks to her husband she's clearly upset she says she wants to leave that she doesn't feel like herself um that there's a black cloud hanging over her again could be a, a nod to race here um you also notice that she's staring at a reflection and, uh, yeah, and she kind of describes what happened at the fun house and that there's this mirror girl that's coming after her and, you know, she's getting close and all this stuff. So all that stuff is pretty cool. Um, and at this exact moment of literal self-reflection, 
at the point where she wants to leave, um, the power goes out. And then suddenly there's a family holding hands in the driveway, similar to Hands Across America that we saw at the beginning, yes, but also to this nice family sticker that they had in the um, back of their car window that we saw at the beginning, if you remember. So the dad comes out and asks nicely what's going on. Then basically comes back in, grabs a baseball bat and starts getting a bit more threatening. And, uh, you know, this is where he goes from using his um, white voice, as it were, uh, if you think of sorry to bother you and all that stuff, to his deeper, you know, black man voice, let's say. And this is something that Key and Peele love kind of playing around with in their in their comedy and their sketches. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like uh, done in a bit of a funny way here as well. Um, so we see the kids of this family kind of run off, move a bit weirdly um, when the mother claps or clicks, whatever it is. We see one of them is in a white mask and he's a bit animalistic. Um, they seem to communicate through, yeah, clicks, uh, claps, whistles, each of them holding a pair of scissors and a single gloved hand and wearing red jumpsuits, which, you know, why are they dressed like this? We'll come on to that a bit later. Now, the mother of this family, which we're going to be calling Red because that's how she is in the um, credits, uh, she moves in a very exact, focused, slightly unnatural manner, which is quite interesting and freaky. So... Once they're in the house, um, the home invasion part, we get uh, a bit of exposition. Uh, I would say this bit is a little bit too long and on the nose, but I did quite like it. And, um, you know, Jason, the son, uh, sums it up when he says, you know, it's us. It is literally them. It's their doppelgangers. You haven't figured that out already. Um, they're looking at the exact version of themselves, but a little bit different. So... Red begins talking. She uh, says, once upon a time, um, there was this girl. But you'll notice that her voice is all hoarse and croaky, like it's never been used before, as if the words like hurt actually trying to get out. Um, so yeah, once upon a time, she says, the girl had a shadow. So she tells us that they are connected, that for all the happiness the girl lived out, the shadow version had the same, but tougher. So at Christmas... For instance, the girl had lots of toys, uh, fun toys, but for Red, she got toys that were sharp and cut her hand when she played with them. Um, everything she went through, Red went through the same, but worse. When there were complications with Jason's birth, for instance, and she had to have what sounds like a caesarean, Red had to do the same, but to herself. So perhaps it's a little bit of a nod here to the, the lack of free healthcare in America. Kind of, maybe people some clutching at straws, but I don't know, there's a few elements I think of throughout the film of that um, and I think having my British outside perspective kind of uh, makes me think that uh, you can also imagine that the conception was just as horrific for her um, who are you people they're asked we're Americans she answers it's very poignant and important to the film's message here which we'll discuss afterwards so they are connected tethered they like to say the um, idiot dad, uh, you know, the, the real dad, as it were, is still not quite getting it. He Take the boat, he says, and it's like, you know, no one wants your boat, dad, which is quite funny, bit of a release of the tension here. But also, you know, there's a message here where he's essentially trying to buy them off. But it seems like they're not motivated by greed or anything like that, that they have a bigger purpose to fulfil. So, anyway, this is where it starts kind of getting a bit 
horror, the dad is dragged off by his uh, brutish counterpart. The girl is told to run, and her counterpart slowly follows, a smile covering her face at all times. Jason's counterpart, this animal-like boy with a white mask, um, is sent off to play with one another, which is, you know, the, the, which is weird, that one. But um, I don't really understand where that was supposed to go in terms of what Red was thinking, but still. So Jason's shadow is uh, seems to copy everything that Jason does. Is this a message about how um, kids just like to copy their fears and don't want to stand out and all this stuff? They want to fit in, um, which kind of harks back to something when the twins, the other family, Eddie, were like, your brother's weird. Um, I don't know. It's just interesting, I thought. But Jason makes him um, take off his mask and we see all these like horrible burns underneath. It's quite a cool shot. Um, so Red says that uh, they want to be untethered and that they don't want to kill them quickly. They want to take their time with them. Um, but yeah, she chains up Abigail to the table and smashes her head against this, uh, yeah, this mirrored table. So that's a symbol, literally, that the reflection is now cracked and breaking through and also that it's going to hurt. Um, so now they're all against their other selves. The boy traps the other boy in the cupboard the mother is kind of walking around. She cuts the head off the rabbit toy and the girl tries to run away from her very fast shadow self. So the dad has a fight with um, his shadow self on this crappy boat um, and wins, basically. And the family are all able to escape on the boat as they watch, as the um, shadow selves watch them leave from the shore. It's quite a cool shot. So meanwhile, the white family, Tim Heidecker, um, they're all chilling out listening to Beach Boys, and then uh, suddenly they're attacked by their other selves. So now we see it's it's happening to everyone, regardless of race or class. So at this moment, I thought it was going to be a race thing. And um, like before this moment, I should say, so it's weird how you get a kind of symbolism twist here. And I wonder if he was aware that he was even doing that. Um, it's quite meta for the fact that maybe he played into people's assumptions from his first film, which was about race, that this was also going to be purely about race. Um, I don't know, something to think about. So the White family are killed, and there's quite a funny moment where they try and tell <laughs> the equivalent of Alexa, whatever it's called, to call the police, and instead, uh, instead it plays with Fuck the Police by NWA. Um, so when our, when our hero family turn up, they notice that the shadow uh, selves have taken over, um, they're white mates, and uh, there's a quite a cool shot of them kind of dragging the mother in that reminded me of um, Day of the Dead. Uh, there's a bit of fighting, and this is kind of like the kind of horror action bit as they try to kill the shadow versions of their friends, and they manage to do just that. Um, yeah, and Elizabeth Moss's one is kind of cutting her face, again representing the discussion of plastic surgery from before. Um, the dad fires a flare gun at Tim Heidecker, which is quite funny as their convo from before was Tim winding the dad up about not having a flare gun in his new boat. Elizabeth Moss um, goes to kill Abigail and then stops herself. So at first I wondered if this was because she looks like their leader, literally Red. Maybe Red had purposely said not to kill her um, so she can do it or whatever, part of the bigger plan. But then I wonder if the end reveal has a bit more to do with it. Like maybe they can tell. Um, so they it reminds me of, what is it, Alien 3, you know, when she's got the mother alien insider so they see on the news that it's happening everywhere and there seems to be some sort of standing protest going on between these people in the red red jumpsuits 
Um, the dad thinks maybe he wants to stay and he's basically afraid of what's out there and thinks they'll be safer in their homes. Abigail suggests that they go to Mexico, which is obviously quite funny in this political climate where Trump is trying to stop people coming in by building a wall. So probably they wouldn't have much luck getting out if that wall was there. Um, and it's also indicative of how America, like like the husband really, would rather maybe stay on its own island in this bloodied house full of death rather than try to step out of its comfort zone and help save themselves. I'm really reading into a political message here, um, uh, which might not even be there. Um, so she also exclaims here that, you know, you don't get to make the decisions anymore. This could be a nod to feminism. And now the time of men uh, making the orders has kind of passed in this current climate. Maybe it's to America itself. You know, you don't get to decide what's best for the world anymore. Again, maybe this is about climate change and the fact that, you know, Trump is a climate change uh, denier. So again, might be reading a little bit too much into this, but whatever. So they get to the car. Abigail has to go back to get the keys and she has a final showdown, one of the daughters and kills her. Uh, Jason sees and seems to be slightly disturbed by it, which you can understand. But, you know, we're thinking, oh, maybe there's a bit more to this. So afterwards... There's a funny scene where they're by the car and they're discussing who should drive and they talk about their kill count. Um, and the daughter decides to drive and takes on her shadow counterpart who's kind of standing in the road and jumps on the car. And there's a cool scene where, yeah, she's attacking them in the car. The daughter slams on the brakes, sends the girl through the trees and she's impaled or something on a tree. So Abigail here is kind of getting upset watching this girl die on this tree and tries to soothe her. And you wonder if it's because it's the fact that you know, watching someone who looks exactly like your daughter die is disturbing enough, but then maybe it's for another reason. So they're going uh, through the pier and they see their car burning in the middle of the road, uh, so stopping them, literally, and the masked boy appears and he's clicking his fingers like Jason does when he tries to light his magic trick and Jason realises that the boy that is trying to... Um, the boy has kind of set a trap and he's trying to blow up the car, basically. Um, and he also remembers that the boy likes to mimic Jason for whatever reason. And, and so he starts making him copy him and he leads him back into the fire where he literally just burns to death. Abigail's like, no, nah. you know, she didn't want that. But who who would want to see that, to be honest? And obviously it's upsetting. But again, maybe, you know, the end has something to do with what's going on here. In terms of the mask and Jason with the mask, when we hear about, you know, one one's action mirrors the other, you think that it's like, okay, is Jason wearing the animal mask making the kid, um, Pluto, I think his name is, which we'll go on to later, wear the white mask to cover up his scars? And then you think, is it the other way around? Surely it would be the other way around if it's like wearing a mask to cover the scars would mean that he's wearing another kind of mask um, that isn't a necessity let's say. So again, this thing with Jason, it's weird. I would kind of, again, if someone said, oh, actually, Jason's one of the tethered, as they're called, um, I would, you know, I would listen to that theory. But anyway, so Red seems to be a little less bothered, the fact that her, her son's just been burnt alive in front of her. And she appears as if in the shadows, actually, it's quite a cool shot, and she takes Jason. So Abigail follows and sees where um, Jason saw the homeless guy before she walks down there in front of the fun house. And this homeless guy 
uh, the Jeremiah 11. 11 guy is now in the middle of this chain that's stretching into the sea. And he looks happy, looks content. Again, it's interesting. The mother goes into the front house and this is, it reminds me of Silent Hill actually, but you may also notice that she seems to know exactly where to go. Also, a little white rabbit jumps out, which we haven't seen them since the beginning of the film, I don't think. So the white rabbit, as perhaps the Matrix fans will know, is also a nod to Alice in Wonderland. It's like a conduit to the world of the fantastic. And if you remember, Alice went down a hole into another world when she followed the white rabbit, which is basically kind of what's happening here. So she travels down um, this weird single strange escalator and there are lots of rabbits everywhere. Uh, it looks as if they are no longer trapped and just roaming around. Uh, she goes into a classroom and sees Red. Uh, Red offers a bit more context here. She says how uh, there are copies of everyone underneath America. There's two bodies, but there's only one soul. They couldn't couldn't copy the soul, whoever they are. Um, all we know is that they uh, were humans, humans who built this place, and the tethered um, are... Uh, literally connected to their um, counterparts who are up in the real world. Unfortunately, it seems like they've all gone mad <laughs> and uh, they're just doing the same as they are above, underneath and more in a more grotesque manner. It's, it's interesting. It's quite cool. Um, but yeah, and by the way, this shot where it's like Red's face up close and Abigail in the background, it's called a deep focus shot, um, which Citizen Kane kind of uh, you know, popularised, I suppose is the word for it. Um, but it's a really cool looking shot. Uh, so anyway, Red states how it was one special moment that kind of changed everything. And when she was performing a ballet, uh, that was, yeah, the moment of change. So as Abigail was performing this uh, ballet above, Red was performing her own strange version below and somehow this resonated with the rest of the tethered and it changed her and it changed them. So they seemed to gain some sort of sentient consciousness from this and uh, they put together a uniform of sorts together. Um, they put their clothes or whatever it is on their bed like you may do in prison or in the army. Um, they take up arms, scissors, and they head out into the world upstairs because now... It's their time to rule. Uh, she references a Hands Across America t-shirt, which seems to be worshipped within the tethered and be a source of inspiration. And Red thanks Abigail as if, um, you know, because if it wasn't for her, she would never have danced at all. None of this would have happened. Um, so it's all quite interesting. Uh, and I'll kind of try and go into that a bit later. So now they fight. And it's a pretty good fight. Red seems to be calm and their fight is kind of cutting in between the dancing that they did as a kid and Red is easily dodging and dancing past Abigail's attacks who's kind of just blindly lashing out um, and if you remember her sense of rhythm in the car it would appear that maybe she's not the greatest dancer maybe she wasn't the greatest dancer that she thought she was and perhaps giving it up when she was younger as well it all kind of feeds into this idea of the soul and, you know, nature rather than nurture. It's interesting that, like, Abigail doesn't have maybe this human um, side, this kind of soulful side, uh, but that she's much more primitive, doesn't have that sense of consciousness. It's interesting. So 
Red is essentially impaled. She literally like drops like a robot without power. And the fight has gone from her, basically. Abigail then uses the handcuffs uh, that she's still in to choke and kill Red. Um, she then becomes uh, a bit tribal here, basically kind of making awful guttural sounds like the tethered do. Uh, she takes the key from around Red's neck, unlocks her handcuffs, and she's now free. So she's free. She grabs Jason and she says to him, you know, you're safe. But Jason just shakes his head like he's not sure if Abigail is his mum anymore. She's like, everything's going to be like it was before, you know. And you feel like that's not really going to be the case. That maybe she's, you know, clinging to something that's no longer there. That the mask of her reality has almost slipped away. And now she do whatever she can to put that mask back firmly in place. So they drive away in an ambulance. Again, this is some metaphor for medical care in America, maybe. Maybe. And um, then we get to the twist. Now, I believe this is her remembering something. Uh, I don't think... I'm not sure if she always knew or if this just came to her, but you see that actually she chained up the original Abigail and took her place. So the Abigail that we've been following was originally one of the tethered. They swapped places. That's the, that's the shock. So this whole time we thought that Abigail was the human one trying to like stave off the tethered when Red was the original human, the girl that we saw at the beginning. Um, and I thought that was quite a cool twist. So... It recontextualizes basically what's just happened. You know, was she fighting for a family? Or was she fighting to cover up who she truly is? You know, that's why she didn't talk, for instance, when she was a child. She didn't know how. That's why she's bad at rhythm and dancing. She, perhaps she doesn't have, you know, that soul, like we said. That's why she was chained up in the house. That was kind of like red, you know, doing a bit of revenge, like a vendetta. Um you could have taken me with you, if you remember, she says to Abigail, which now makes that line all the much sadder, doesn't it? So, so who is the enemy here? It's, it's tough to decide. And the answer is there probably isn't really an enemy, but I just, you know, I thought it was a great little twist, to be honest. I did see it coming. Um, but throughout the film, I was a bit like, oh, maybe, maybe not, maybe, maybe not. Um, and when it did happen, I was like, in the way they did it, I was like, that's pretty cool. I, I liked it. So... Abigail kind of puts on this freakish smile and you're not sure if it's genuine or if it's that same weird smile she would give as a kid that we saw. Um, but either way, Jason looks on a bit quizzically as he, uh, as, um, as he puts on his mask. So does he really know? Has he maybe, is it maybe that he's seen this murderous, savage part of his mother and it maybe terrifies him so he's hiding behind the mask? Uh, a lot could be read into it. And now... Both of them are essentially, you know, wearing masks one way or another, literally and metaphorically. Uh, so, yeah, we then zoom out to see the tethered are all holding hands while the uplifting song of Le Fleur, if that's how you say it, by Minnie Ripperton um, goes on and we see a bunch of helicopters and, uh, helicopters and smoke rising in the background. But it's apocalyptic and yet weirdly hopeful. But why? So... Now we're going to take a look um, and get into the nitty gritty of it. So let's take a break, roll up our sleeves as we take a good look at Inside Us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So yeah, there's a lot going on with us. And uh, I'm going to try and break it down as much as possible. So firstly, who are the tethered? So we're led to believe that, you know, it's a government conspiracy that was abandoned. Uh, But these lower classes, and that's what they are, they are the forgotten. They are literally the real abandoned, the poor. They're left to fend for themselves. In the context of the film's reality, it's quite a leap to think that there's just this entire population of America living underneath us doing what we do. You know, how can that still even function? Do they still have running water? Who changes the light bulbs? How does it work? Um, yeah, why is it even access through a funhouse? You know, one of the access points anyway. So, of course, it's better to see this as one big metaphor rather than going too far down the logistics of how something like this clone thing uh, works. In theory, the tethered are like mindless zombie versions of ourselves that can be controlled. So they represent the darker, more primitive side of us. Let's be honest, that's kind of you know what we're getting at here. Uh, I was also playing with the idea that they could also essentially be virtual versions of ourselves, like living within a controlled environment, avatars almost. Um, Is it representing how we're secretly controlled by the government without us knowing? And usually this is through virtual means these days, you know, blindly being led around by a greater power. If you think about the whole fiasco with Russia and Cambridge Analytica and all this stuff, um, Maybe it's a case of all our our virtual selves just being led around and thinking that we have autonomy and that we're able to think independently when we don't. (laughs) Um, And yeah, so anyway, the white clinical uh, look of this underground place also makes me think it looks slightly like a madhouse or (laughs) a futuristic tech company maybe. Um, But yeah, when this experiment was underway, it's it's interesting to think like how were they controlling us? What were they doing exactly? Uh, so it's quite interesting to think about you know what the original purpose was and what they actually how they actually went about it. Um, I don't want to see it. I want my mind to think about it. But um, yeah, I'm 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 interested. Symbolically, uh, the tethered are also the id, the basic human instinctual part of ourselves. They also fit into the idea, the myth of the doppelganger which is German for double-goer, which I always thought was quite funny. Um, And a doppelganger, uh, mythically talking, isn't a good thing. It's a sign of bad luck. It's usually associated with an evil twin or 
the duality of human nature. Again, duality being a big deal here. So if you think of Dostoevsky's The Double, for instance, that's about someone evil who exploits the flaws of their good version to take over their life. Um, sounds a bit familiar, right? So the Hands Across America thing, let's talk about that for a sec. So in the uh, era of Trump that we now live in and his his wall that he's hoping to build, uh, we see here a much more charitable wall, a wall of people that stretched across the whole of America to help end world hunger. And, you know, that's that was the point of it, right? It's a symbol of togetherness, of equality, no matter where you're from or who you are, you've come together to hold hands and do something good for once. It's literally a symbol. Truthfully, we know that, like all these things, it's a bit of the usual 80s chirpy, fake smile, and it's all a bit bollocks, really, isn't it? But that dream is there, and clearly Abigail, as um, a child, so, uh, you know, red, essentially, she's bought it. She's bought into this dream. It was the last thing she saw on TV before she left. Remember that? And she's got a T-shirt of it as well. Um, so... That kind of wall is a much different symbol for the wall that Trump is trying to put up. Um, and also when you look at it, when it kind of zooms out that final shot, it looks like a scar. So like, is it a scar that's been made to stitch up the wound that is America running across the entire country? And it's, you know, everyone coming together. And that's part of the reason why the film ends with such hope. I feel it's, it's as if like America has come to terms with its past and, now America can kind of move on. The sins are on show. Everyone's being honest with one another, etc. It's as if now with the tethered up and holding hands and all this stuff, everyone is now truly equal. The lies and the sins have been exposed. We're now all on the same playing field. We're all level. It's uh, interesting, I think. And it is weird that it. I feel like it really was like a weird, hopeful ending. In reality, though, again, kind of what I speak about before, Hands Across America was, um, you know, even though it's trying to bring an end to racism and hunger and all this stuff, it was actually rather futile. I mean, it didn't work, really, did it? It didn't end world hunger or end racism. But it's also the case that apparently 30 million of it was raised and only 15 million was actually given to charity because the rest was operational costs for performing such a thing. So even with that, there's a slight mistruth in that, you know, it wasn't perhaps as effective as it might have deemed to be. And, you know, it's quite cynical. But basically the reality of it is that it didn't work. But yet uh, Red slash Abigail when she was a child, Red is completely bought into this dream. And that's kind of what part of the inspiration behind this whole revolution. So, you know... That's why here we are, the final shot, we're hand in hand, and it's, it's yeah, it's a bit hopeful. But, um, yeah, so as you've probably guessed already, the film is about America. It's no coincidence that us, you know, is spelt US, United States, and, you know, we're Americans, she says at one point, and they're right. Even though they may be deemed the other, the lesser, they were born on American soil. They are as deserving as the others to be there. But in fact, really, you could say they're even the true Americans. There's, there's no masks with these guys. They are the unmasked. They're the ugly truth of the country. You know, they are, in that sense, more American than, than those at top. And they may be treated like 
unwanted immigrants approaching on their turf, hence the kind of initial home invasion scenario of the story, but they are just as deserving. This is literally the real America rising up, the sins of the country coming back to roost. And Abigail is living out an evil version of the American dream. She's literally come from nothing to something and in the worst way possible by switching places. But it is, it's the, it's the American dream, right? They're all doing it. Uh, so yeah, you probably have figured out as well that it's a commentary on class, the haves and the have-nots, the ones who live on top, unknowingly, or in Abigail's case, really, knowingly, causing the suffering of the people below. Red believes that it's God and fate that have brought them together. But I think, you know, when you look at it, Abigail, when she was trapped down there, through sheer ambition, perhaps, and maybe she was a bit different from the tethered around her, that that's why she attacked. That's why she attacked the real Abigail and damaged her voice cords, her vocal cords, which is why her voice sounds so horrible in the, in the movie. And she literally subdued the more privileged version of her and took her place. Um, so, yeah, by kind of strangling Abigail, she's, or Red, I should say, confusing, <laughs> um, she's essentially taken away her voice. And, you know, of course, as it is through history before a revolution, the lower classes are deemed to not be heard. They are the lesser. There's a reason why the tethered always aim for the neck when they're attacking and killing. Their revenge is taking away the voice of the upper classes, in this case, for good. So it's quite tragic, really. Um, the tethered, when they were below, are just trying to do what the upper classes are doing, but a much more sad version, kind of keeping up with the Joneses, right, in a weird way. And isn't that what everyone is always doing? But now they can live their full lives. They can live their own American dream. So Abigail, through either sheer luck or skill or drive or fate, has essentially jumped a class by escaping the below. And at first, and I'm talking about um, when, you know, she was a kid at the funhouse. So at first she didn't know how to act, how to talk, but it was through creativity that she learned to communicate. And creative arts is something that transcends class, that resonates through to all humans. That's why the ballet dance is super important, because it's her way of communicating, and it's something that inspires the tether below. It's something they can feel. It's their way of communicating, feeling something, and they start to you know, worship the one thing from above that they have which is also the last thing Red saw before she went to the fun fair, this Hands Across America thing, the T-shirt. So it's now the symbol that it was meant to truly be. There's no fakery around it. There's no ulterior motives. There's no bullshit. It inspires a real, actual movement with Red being the leader. So not only is she the only one that can actually communicate with the upper classes, which is important for every revolutionary leader, but she's actually from the upper classes. And... She seems to know how to change, you know, their thinking, giving them that autonomy where they can get these jumpsuits and come up. Um, so she's kind of this catalyst that's communicating between both classes. She can help this lower caste rise. Uh, but she's deemed the only way to really get the real results is to kill and replace their other halves. 
There's no room for both of them to be able to exist, apparently. A message that she learned as a kid when she says, you know, oh, you could have taken me with you. It's interesting. Um, but no, this is kind of revenge, full-on revenge. So the upper classes have had their time, and now, through bloodshed, a revolution is going to happen. And it's something that might sound absolutely awful and horrid, but this is what has happened time and time again throughout history and through American history. So it's, you know, in reality, in America, the gulf between classes is deemed bigger than ever. So, you know, for instance, and this is just a bit of few facts for you here, three people are earning more wealth than the bottom half of American society, which is mad when you think about it. The top 1% have more wealth than the bottom 92%. And recently, the Federal Reserve said over the last 30 years, the top 1% have 21 trillion, 21 trillion uh, increase in wealth and a 900 billion decrease for the bottom half. So a small number of incredibly wealthy people. So... Yeah, this is happening now. So it's, the, you know, you can understand the frustration of the lower classes and the the fear maybe that the upper classes have that they're going to have to at some point pay for what they've done. Um, So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about red. So red, literally the colour red, is seen throughout. Um, And, you know, not just because it's the character's name of Abigail's shadow or anything like that, but the colour red obviously represents blood. It represents danger. Um, they're also the colour of these prison-like jumpsuits, as if the lower class are looked on as criminals. And I'm sure the fact that the number of African-Americans in prison isn't something that's forgotten here either. But if you look at what Abigail is doing throughout the movie, there's an element of the colour red constantly around her. When she's a kid, seeing her parents talk with the uh, doctor, she's playing in front of a red tray. She's eating a strawberry when the film opens up on her as an adult. There's the candy apple at the beginning. Red is there always it's always with her so when she finds out what's happening i think she's consciously trying to save her family but subconsciously she's fighting against her own history her own roots she needs to keep up the charade that she belongs where she is even if she got there through evil means does that sound familiar so red feels like she deserved to be up top because she was born into it but did she actually have the ambition Did she have the true intelligence that maybe Abigail seemingly had? And also, if she was trapped down there, how did she not actually escape? Why not try and do it? Even if she was knocked out all the way down, it's not that hard to get out, is it? I mean, Abigail did it. I think within the film, the answer is that by them swapping places, Red has now been lulled into being the underclass, the voiceless, the controlled. So she's feeding off what her surface-dwelling side is doing and has basically... She's been repressed. So keep in mind, there's just a down escalator as well. Abigail really fought to get up there against all odds. And when she went against the grain and made it out, it's impressive. So this is why she knows how to, you know, get around the funfair at the end. She knows where all the doors are and stuff because, yeah, she's, she's been there before. And she has to venture deep into herself to face her fear. So what about Abigail's family and their shadows? Um, It's interesting because they essentially represent the flaws of their characters. The daughter is an unmotivated track athlete who looks miserable all the time. 
but her shadow is a smiling, focused, incredible athlete. She's also called Umbri, I believe, the plural of Umbra, which is the darkest part of the shadow during the eclipse. Um, I believe it literally means something like second shadow. Jason, the sun, can barely make his lighter work, and the shadow version, Pluto, is a master pyromaniac obsessed with fire. Uh, Pluto, the name, is uh, the furthest planet from the sun, obviously, which might explain his obsession with fire to just be closer to light. It's also the god of the underworld, and it's also the dog in Disney, and he acts a bit like a dog, doesn't he? <laughs> if you know what I mean. So maybe Pluto as a name is a bit on the nose, but um, they're all names to do with the dark. Ibrahim, the father, could be based on the Bible, where his children inherit the earth in the, in the Bible, which is kind of what the whole plan is, right? You know, they're taking over the earth. Um, but when the shadow children die, Abigail feels a pain. And that's interesting because the question is, like, does she feel like truly these could be her own children? These could have been her kids? Does she feel some kind of connection still with her former folk? Or is it just because it's, you know, a sad sight? I don't know what the answer is, um, but it's interesting to think about. The Shadow Family could also fit in with how rich white Americans, you know, see African Americans, either as huge, strong, brutish idiots, destructive criminals, manipulative people trying to take over America, or physically empowered athletes, essentially filling racist stereotypes. Um, as I said earlier, the, the film also deals with how it takes rather revolutionary music and how mainstream culture basically absorbs it. When they try to call the police and the fuck the police thing, it's, it's a funny moment, but it's also showing how in reality we call for the police, we rely on them, but yet we also sing songs like that without thinking about the original meaning behind them. And especially in this current political climate, that song is just as important as it was back then, but doesn't really have the same effect anymore, does it? It's also in contrast to the sunny white Beach Boys that was played just before, which is a very different side of California compared to NWA. So you can see the racial difference here being highlighted um, in, in quite a humorous way. Uh, the fun house is interesting. Find yourself, it says, inviting America literally in. And in the case of Abigail, she does find herself. She literally finds herself. Um, the man in transition is indicative of how America deals with its former horrid history. Just repaint it. Doesn't face its own problems or anything like that. We just put a new fresh coat of paint. The Native American is also a horror trope. If you think of The Shining, Pet Cemetery, Poltergeist, I think. All of these films deal with how America and the characters in these films have to take responsibility for their actions, their past sins and the treatment of others. All of which is in, is in this movie as well. The Tethered are, like us, um, a product of history. We walk around like zombies, not even knowing what really is truly happening, just like they do. And it reminds me of Adam Curtis's BBC documentary, actually, called Hypernormalization, which I do highly recommend that you watch. Um, and it discusses how governments essentially use distractions to hold power over the public, uh, which is a, you know, a big Trump tactic, basically. Uh, misinformation, talking about fake news, what's real, what's, what's not. It's all a play. And this is kind of what they are perhaps suggesting here, maybe. It also shows how governments and society, they normalise things like Black Flag or NWA. They normalise it to control it. Uh, masks are important in this film as well. People hiding their true nature or using it as a defence mechanism like the sun does. 
Again, he's an animal mask, like we said, as if he's trying to appear brave and dangerous, but in fact he's nothing of the sort. His shadow, Pluto, his mask is white. I wasn't sure if this was a race thing or not, but why? otherwise why would it be white? Is it representing how black people feel like they have to put on their white mask when dealing with upper classes? Maybe. I'm not sure if it works in this scenario, but, you know, still. Maybe it's an indication of how all of them are, as a family are pretending to be white. Hence the mask. It's also perhaps indicative of how the boy pretends to be an animal, whereas his counterpart moves and behaves like an animal but pretends to be white. I mean, even if you look at the very beginning, the funfair itself is a mask. It's all bright lights and fun and distractions, while the dark creepiness lives just a small walk away. You know, even within their family unit, they're trying to have fun, but the parents argue and they bicker. It shows the true nature of their family relationship. And, you know, now, with the tethered, it's time for America to face the truth, to come up against their, their darkness, as it were. So, what's with the get-up? What about what they're wearing? Um, so, yeah, the prison-like outfits are one thing, and I think the fact that Abigail is chained up, same way she chained, you know, former Abigail um, to the bed, is, is quite telling. For me, I was like, maybe the chains indicate slavery. They're connected to black history, a, a symbol of repression. Abigail has to literally break free of her chains, break free of what she feels is holding her down to be free. They also carry scissors, scissors being a symbol of separation. It's also, you know, when you think of things like when you're cutting an umbilical cord, a literal link to another human being, they use a pair of scissors, separate the link, the tether. They also, they look like scissors that you'd have when cutting clothes or fabric or something. So there's an element of the working class tool about them. They're not fancy scissors or anything like that. They look like, you know, yeah, worker, worker scissors. Uh, the single leather glove, I think it looks a little bit like a posh driving glove or a golf glove, which is an ironic twist on how gloves are used in the upper classes. But apparently it's also kind of a hint at Michael Jackson, who is a perfect example of duality. Michael Jackson, softly spoken pop star, who gave off this sweet, innocent, talented charade, when in reality he's a sadistic paedophile, you know, Allegedly, but I have to say I think it's true anyway. And we know Red is a Michael Jackson fan. That's why she chose the Thriller t-shirt. So something she probably clung on to the whole time down there were these little reminders of Michael Jackson, you know, wearing all red like he does in Thriller as well. It's, it's interesting. Uh, again, we talked about reflections. There's reflections in the Hall of Mirror, the... TV when she's um, talking about her with her husband about what happened. Um, so there's these very obvious nods to the idea of a double. What is the real you? What is the representation of you? Um, what's your identity? So what about the rabbits? Well, practically speaking, it's you know they're known for breeding, so I guess it's a good continuous source for the tethered to live off on. But it's also worth noting how they're generally used for animal experimentation, much like the tethered. They're imprisoned, and now they're free, much like the tethered as well. And also there's the Alice in Wonderland reference, which we discussed, rabbits often being associated with magic and wonder. It's almost as if rabbits live in this strange magical land, which, if you remember, in Alice in Wonderland, Alice was trying to escape from. Very similar to what Red is going through uh, with, with her situation. 
the rabbit toy represents what Abigail left behind. She looks at it fondly because she's kind of, you know, still reminds her of her time down in that horrible basement. Um, and also, if you remember, that's when she has a flashback to the, the ballerina thing when she was a kid. You know, so she's reminded of where she's from and how far she's come, basically, by this white rabbit toy. Uh, and also the fact that, you know, Red cuts off the head of it, you know, it shows how you know, not only is it a revenge thing, but also how she's trying to escape from anything that may remind her of that hell that she's just come out of. Uh, she's probably sick of rabbits by now, let's be honest. So the Jeremiah one, 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 um, you see those numbers everywhere. As we said, like even the black flag logo is four straight lines. It's f- like four individuals. It's like the family. They're essentially, a, you know, and even the numbers themselves are a reflection of both themselves as single digits and as numbers together. It's, a, it's double, one, 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 eleven, and eleven. So this passage in the Bible states the following. It says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they cry unto me, though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. So it talks of a wrath of God, um, and a kind of a God that ignores them, essentially, and how there will be no quarter, no mercy. They're going to be done for. In the context of the narrative of the film, it's to do with the tethered rising up to take revenge, aiming for the throats of their victims that, you know, if, even if they try to, uh, to cry out, they won't be heard. But you could also apply it to the tethered themselves, that they're, they're, as them being the victims, they have cried out to be heard, an evil having me brought upon them, but yet nothing. It could also be said of the Native Americans and you know how Christianity has been forced upon the country. It's interesting. So what did I think about the film? To be honest, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. More than Get Out, actually. Uh, I liked the bigger questions it was raising. Get Out felt like a Twilight Zone episode, which is ironic, again, seeing as Jordan Peele is doing a Twilight Zone now, but Us felt bigger. I also love that it got me thinking a lot, you know, especially afterwards. The acting is great. Um, I did feel it was a little long and it did sag in the middle when they were visiting the friend's house, which was kind of ticking more of the classic action horror tropes. But but I think the shots were fantastic, very well directed. The pace was okay. Uh, the sense of unease and dread was really well placed out, which I love. And the script did keep me guessing, even when I thought I had it all figured out. I wasn't sure if it was going to maybe change my perceptions of, of what the film was. Um, the music was fantastic. The plucking of piano strings, the sudden stops and starts of violins. It gives it a real sense of dread and, you know, makes you feel horrible. And it actually reminds me a bit of Psycho. Um, Michael Abels, I think, is the uh, composer. Um, it's just horrible to listen to, and I love it. It also reminded me slightly of the Ghost in the Shell um music where it's slightly chanty and a bit disturbing in that sense i guess the twist at the end wasn't that much of a surprise for me um and the big kind of exposition dumps by red basically kind of did rattle me slightly um a little bit too heavy-handed maybe could have done it maybe in a bit smarter way but overall i really enjoyed it it looked great sound great um it's enjoyable i don't think it's crazy out there horror it's not really that gory either uh best of all it's just that little bit disturbing the only thing i'd say is maybe it's trying to bite off a bit more than it could chew um 
And as we've seen from my analysis, it's got a lot of different messages within it, uh, which is fine, but I'm not sure what I was supposed to leave it thinking really, or, you know, what was I really supposed to learn from it? Uh, you know, what sometimes makes things popular is leaving enough on the table and without explicitly saying something so that even the most casual cinema guy will believe that they've figured out what the film is about. Even if you've made it obvious, they like the, the idea that they've invested themselves into it by believing they're clever enough to kind of get it. So, you know, that itself brings a certain enjoyment. And that's, I think, Get Out had that. But I don't think people will still feel the same way from us. Um, which is a shame because I do truly think that it's actually a better film. Uh, it creeped me out. And I think that I would like to see it again, get a second viewing out of it. But I couldn't, I think a third viewing might be a bit overkill. I'd have to wait a while before I came, came back to it. Um, but yeah, overall, definitely worth watching. Perhaps not quite as impactful or clear a message that Get Out had, but definitely worth your time. So if I was you, go out and check out us. So that's it for today. Make sure to head on over to uh, our Instagram and Twitter pages, which is at A New Winter. You can email us at a new winter podcast at gmail.com. And yeah, have a look at our Patreon page. As I said before, patreon.com slash a new winter. And look forward to hearing you on the next one. Cheers. Bye. Oh, yeah. Where's Jason? 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 Where were you? I didn't know if you were lost. Stick with me and I'll keep you safe. There's a family in our driveway. It's probably the neighbors. But y'all scared of a family? Hi, can I help you? Zora, put your shoes on. If you want to get crazy, we can get crazy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.